Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, it's Rob Tyson again, and on today's episode of the Dig Dig the Mining podcast, we have Dave Norvell with us, who will share his career and journey where he's been heavily involved in the mining industry in Africa, and more so in Ghana. So he has a wealth of expatriate experience, and I'm sure it will be of interest to many of our listeners. So, how are you going, David? Fine, Rob. Thanks very much for inviting me. Yeah, no worries. Thanks a lot for agreeing to come on to this podcast today. Um, I want to start at the beginning of your career um, in the early days in the mining industry. As you and from what I know of you, you didn't come through some of the other people that I have actually interviewed that have gone through um, studying degrees, and you came through a slightly different route through a college. So I just wanted if you could sort of share your journey, starting back when you were when you went to college, what you did, um, and before you sort of entered entered the the mining industry. Now, strangely enough, I went to school with a lot of people that came from the mining industry in South Africa, but didn't ever consider it as a career. I okay. had been uh, going home on exits from boarding school with some of them and met their families and didn't know what they did. So when I finished school, uh, I felt that chemistry was something that I enjoyed and so ended up uh, going to college in South Africa to study analytical chemistry. But that started off because just near where I lived, was a company called African Explosives and Chemical Industries in Modifantine, South Africa. Again, I didn't know it at the time. It was just a big chemical, just a big factory complex yeah. near us. Uh, every now and again, there would be uh, some explosions. Um, so I suppose you're a bit curious <laughs> as to what this what this was and had seen or hearing all these explosions. I think it was more about, I didn't really know what to do, and a, and a neighbor of ours who worked there said, well, you know, the company offers part-time educational programs once you finish school, and I went for an interview with the company, was employed as a laboratory technician, okay. uh, and which allowed me to go to college part-time uh, to study analytical chemistry. And so started a career in as a research chemist, okay. uh, which I did for several years in AECI. The interesting thing about AECI, obviously, is was African explosives and yeah. chemical industries. And whereabouts in South Africa was this? That is, the company still exists. Um, it's now called AEL. It's still in Morafinti, very near the International Airport. Okay. Is that in... It's just outside Johannesburg. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, obviously, you, you went to study at college. Um, did you work... Were you studying as well as work, doing work experience? Yes. Yeah, so, we went to college 
for the first two years, you could go to college uh, three nights a week, yeah. which the company allowed you to leave slightly early. And then if you had passed in your third and final year, you were given um, six months off to attend college full time. So the, in order to get your diploma, you had to work the same amount of time as you you attended college, which was yeah. three, which was three years. Yeah. So I ended with a diploma in analytical chemistry. Yeah. And did they give give you a guaranteed job at the end of that, or did you have to then go out and find work? No, I was working all the time. I was employed as right from the start. So that was the good thing. I was I was being paid to to study. Yeah. And obviously was gaining uh, experience in being a research chemist. Okay. And then how did your sort of career develop once you actually finished your studies and obviously you continue to work within the company? What, how was your journey then and how did, it, how did it develop? Well, I think my father was a salesman. So okay. my mother wanted me to be a doctor, uh, but that wasn't in my uh, academic gifts. So I always had the idea to be a salesman. And again, didn't quite understand that, you know, big industries needed salespeople as well as what my dad had done, which was, yeah. fast, which was sort of fast moving goods. So in my time at, at Morifantine, um, we actually had a sports club on the facility. Yeah. Because in the old days, Morifantine was very far away from Johannesburg. Yeah. So it was almost like a mining community and had people living on it and sports facilities. And through the sporting facilities, I met a number of the people from the sales office. Yeah. So the choice was go into production or stay stay in research, but I was not a graduate, so that yeah. was limited. Uh, so either go into production, so I had to look at that. I spent, I was seconded into production activities for about six months. Didn't like that. And then got the opportunity to be interviewed by the sales and joined as a junior rep okay. uh, after about five years in, in the laboratory. So yeah. from then on, moved through marketing, general management. Yeah. Um, and what was the main product you were, you were selling? Well, in those days, a lot of them were for the mining industry. Yeah. Although my personal portfolio that I looked after wasn't mining, uh, but we produced sulfuric acid, nitric acid, yeah. uh, caustic soda, all the main reagents for, for the mining industry. Uh, AECI also was a big producer of cyanide. Yeah. yeah. So mining was a big part of, of their business. Yeah. Okay. And then, so obviously you said you were in sales for five years? No, no, I was, I was in laboratories for five, five years. years. Then you went into obviously sales, there's no marketing. Um, and then how long were you in that sort of discipline before you then moved further up your career? I was in sales for, in total, 15 years, I would think, which maybe a bit less, which included as a, as a young salesman. Uh, then I actually left the company for a while to go to another sales job. I returned as a sales manager in one of the branch offices. I was then promoted to what we then called a product manager, which was a marketing role. And out of that, fortunately, I got a overseas secondment for two years uh, to uh, what was 
not quite our parent company, but our shareholding company uh, called ICI. Okay. Yeah, so I, I worked. ICI. I worked up in uh, Rangkong. Okay. For two yeah. years. Is that the bulbing line? No, no, that wasn't in mining again. That was still in chemicals. Oh, in chemicals. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I've actually um, been dealing with a company called ICL, who used to be ICI, um, who are part of, I believe, they're part of the same company and they have a mine site up in the north of the UK. Um, but they, they only have a couple of mines, but their overall industry is in the chemical industry. So it's probably the same company. Yeah, I mean, ICI in its day was a massive yeah. company. It had the salt mines in in uh, in the northeast of England, which was the base raw material for a lot of their products in the factory complexes in, in Runcorn. Yeah, and how did you get that job? That was a secondment. The way it came about was uh, obviously um, our graduates were offered um, a secondment overseas, but as a as a technician or as a, a, a diplomat, we we didn't get it. But I always pushed my bosses. So the opportunity came about when uh, one of our customers had arranged a swap for one of their buyers to come from Unilever UK and swapped with a buyer in Unilever South Africa. Okay. And I went to my boss and said, wouldn't that be a good idea? And he thought it was a good idea. So uh, about two years later, we arranged a swap where the product manager from ICI Runcorn on yeah. the Sulfur Group projects came to South Africa for two years and I went and sat in his chair in the UK for two okay. years. Okay, so after that two year period, because obviously I know you've done a lot of work in Africa, um, what happened after those two years? Did you go back to Africa or South Africa? Um, how was your... I went, I went back to South Africa in a very interesting job because it was a time in South Africa when um, AECI and, and, a, and a number of companies had grown up almost as sole suppliers. Okay. And there's a company in South Africa called Sassel who was entering the market, they were producing a fuel from coal, but had a lot of other raw materials in, in their production train and started to move downstream into the chemicals business and, and our business became very competitive. And so I moved back at a time when we were trying to introduce the sales and marketing people into a competitive world. So I went into, I suppose what you would call a staff job, which yeah. You know, you, you weren't a line person anymore. And I was working with a consultancy firm to try and run a program to increase awareness of competition and how we should behave in a competitive environment. And shortly after that, my boss from the chemicals division was moved to the explosives division yeah. for the same reason, to help them face a, a competitive market. And myself and a colleague uh, were asked to join him. So that's how I ended up that's in the mining industry. Okay, yeah. So obviously you were a supplier to the mining industry and over time you then became more involved in into the mining industry with obviously a good explosives. Uh, yes, but I mean, I, I guess that is always as a supplier. Yeah. Okay. In, in my whole mining uh, career, uh, which has been since 1990, 
um, it is either been the supply of chemicals or explosives or many other services uh, yeah. through the years. So I'm not a miner, I'm a mine supplier. Yeah. So you mentioned the round of explosives, which is probably a bit different to what you have been used to. How's, uh, how's that? Well, it was very interesting coming from the chemicals business because up until then, as I've said, ICI were a, uh, AECI were a sole supplier yeah. uh, in the South African market. Uh, the market was huge in those days. It was all underground. There was some, there was some open pit or open yeah. cost, but it was mainly got underground gold was the dominant sector. And of course, everybody else had grown up in the mining industry. Uh, they were either graduate mining engineers in, in, the, in the sales and marketing team. So they didn't quite take to the chemical guys coming in and uh, suggesting ways to, to better the so way they did things. They have conflict now. There was indeed. And one of the things I did to overcome that was we used to run an internal explosives engineers um, course, yeah. which well, an ex, uh, an ex, yeah. So we, we the the salesmen in those days were called explosives engineers, and and they were generally all graduates. So they ran this internal program, and I. I did the program and passed, which which at least gave me some some credibility with with the other explosives people that that I could at least understand what they did. I want to obviously probably go on to a little bit more detail around um, yourself working as an expatriate. Because I know you've done a lot of work in Ghana, but I'm going to leave that for a little while now. But obviously, you mentioned you worked in South Africa. You came over to the UK. Um, what was it like? working, being a South African back in the day, coming over to the UK to work? Well, that was certainly, um, for me, opening my eyes to a lot of things that we didn't have in South Africa. Okay. So so would you say the UK was sort of more advanced at that stage for certain, for certain things? You know, South Africa was a very closed economy. I mean, I came through... Um, an education system that was good. I worked for a, a very large company in its day in South Africa, but in those, even in those days, we were we were isolated. So coming to the UK, uh, not only from I mean, I worked for ICI, which was an advanced company, and had a computer on my desk, which certainly I hadn't had in South Africa. Okay. Certainly. You know, TV only started in South Africa in 1973. So, again, the, the quality of TV, uh, banking, uh, I mean, just freedoms that, that, you know, we hadn't, I hadn't enjoyed in South Africa. Uh, I think uh, opened my eyes up to, um, you know, a, wide, a wider world. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting to hear. But obviously, not, obviously not just mining, but... South Africa was probably a little bit behind. I, I doubt that would be the case now, but obviously back then um, there was a lot of obviously differences in the way I suppose people lived as well. And yeah, that, not to get too much into the politics yeah. of things, but yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a South Africa that was um, in the apartheid era. Yeah. So we did not 
other than in work in the work environment, um, you know, the South Africans lived apart. So yeah. we, the the white people, um, I guess, lived. Not I guess we did live a very privileged upbringing, but we were very isolated. Yeah. Uh, moving to the UK um, gave me a chance to meet and work with 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 lots of other people. You know, ICI was a big international company, so we had people from all over the world in Runcorn, and all of a sudden, um, you know, you met people with with more knowledge. Because again, ICI recruited very, very clever people. Yeah. So I was thrown into a world where all my peers were graduates, probably from top universities around the world, um, had wonderful ideas, had studied wonderful things, um, and I guess gave me probably uh, the world to you know look for other opportunities outside of South Africa. I hadn't yeah. really thought of that before. Yeah. Okay, so I, was, I suppose I want to speak a little bit more more recently um, than, what, what, than what we have already been speaking about. So, how was your time working in the mining mining industry outside of South Africa within Africa as a whole? Going back to uh, South Africa in 1992, uh, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Yeah. Uh, and working for a big international company, we had been, the South African element of that company, the AECI part, had been prevented from working outside of South Africa. Right. So most of the ICI assets in Africa had been managed from the international base in, in London. And we had a new uh, chief executive that moved into the mining uh, sector from Australia. And he uh, said, well, why don't the South Africans manage the assets in Africa? Yeah. So I was very fortunate because it, almost an overnight decision was made that we would have to go and uh, look after the assets. And in those days, they were only in um, Zimbabwe and Zambia. But fortunately for me, they were building uh, an explosives factory in Ghana as a joint venture with the Shanty Goldfields. And I and a colleague who was my engineering manager were sent, the decision was made within a week. We went up, we had a look, we said we'll go. And that's how I became an expat. You know, yeah. Almost on the day that I was told I was going to Ghana, I had to go and look in an atlas to see where it was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so uh, obviously, and then that started your career, and obviously you've been working, done lots of things in Ghana, but that, obviously that was the, the stepping, stepping stone into, into Ghana. So how was those early days working in, I suppose, being a South African and working in a... I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say neighboring country, but in another country within, within the continent of Africa. That was very interesting because I suppose to, uh, if you understand the history of Ghana, they were the first African country to get independence. And quite a lot of uh, Ghanaians had been involved uh, in trying to assist the South Africans. But West Africa is a long way from South Africa. Yeah. So... While our experience had been in Southern Africa, and I mean, we, I've traveled outside of South Africa to Zimbabwe and, and, and those sorts of places, uh, moving away to a country that was 
um, you know, been independent for all those years, had a sort of history that we hadn't ever studied or understood, was uh, both frightening and, and interesting. And I mean, I think the one thing about Ghana, as anybody who's ever been there, is they are very welcoming. They, yeah. they have a word called a kwabai, which means welcome. And uh, all of a sudden, I was in a country who spoke very good English. Yeah. Um, my first meeting of people, the first person I met was going was my new boss, who was Sir Sam Jonah, yeah. who was the chairman of the board of the joint venture company. And I had moved from a position in South Africa where I did not have any close colleagues who were of colour to finding myself reporting to Sam Jonah, who was Ghanaian, yeah. who was the MD of Ashanti Goldfields. And clearly within 30 seconds, you understood, and me as a South African, understood that people of colour could be smarter, cleverer, more charismatic than anybody you'd met before. And understand. that was a big change for me. Yeah, understand. And obviously you would have experienced that living in South Africa, whereas maybe someone from the UK may have not had that as much impact as it did to yourself. So, no, that was interesting to hear. I just want to come briefly, um, because from what I know of yourself, you moved out of the mining industry uh, and went into the healthcare industry. So just want to briefly cover that. One, why you actually did that, but also was it a decision that you probably later regret because most of your career have been in the mining industry? No, um, my, my time in Ghana was limited by contracts. I was there for five years. Yeah. And after leaving, my choices were to go back to South Africa. Uh, and uh, go back into the, 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 the company in South Africa. I had learned a lot. I felt that I didn't want to go back into a corporate environment. Um, I had met my now current wife, who is English, and so decided, and with the help of my company, in fact, uh, set up on my own, yeah. Um, to represent them outside of the UK. So I moved uh, outside of South Africa. I moved to the UK. And even though I'd worked here with ICI, um, all of a sudden I had great difficulty in trying to find a job because my associations were with ICI, which didn't exist anymore because yeah. it had been sold off. Yeah. And I was looking in the local newspaper one day and there was an advert for a non-executive director of the local Ipswich Hospital. Yeah. And it was really more about getting myself a local profile that caused me to apply. Yeah. Um, it turned out that it, you know, it was a career of part-time, although it was, seven years of my involvement. Yeah. Um, and again, it gave me... A, a, the ability to work in the community, yeah. in the healthcare sector, which, you know, for, for many of us that don't understand the NHS, seems to be at times wonderful, seems to be at times incredibly slow and, and, and has problems. But yeah. it, 
you know, it's filled with wonderful people, very clever people, and what they were trying to do was very important. Mm. And through that, I then uh, joined the IOD, studied to uh, become a director, and became a charter director as a result of my work. So it didn't take me away from mining because I still used to keep some of my interest in Ghana. So I used to travel to Ghana when I could. Okay. Uh, but it also gave me the chance to become a chartered director. Okay. I was going to well, I was going to go on to uh, another question to say, did you take anything out from working in the healthcare, any skills, and then take them back into the mining industry when you did return to return to? Um, obviously, you, uh, you worked for for Bangor as a chairman, executive in the committee. So did you, did you take some of the skills from the healthcare industry and use them in mining? I met the owner of Bandlaw while I was still uh, working in Ghana. He, yeah. he, had, he had come, he was Scottish, he had come from the closure of the Scottish coal fields and brought a lot of equipment to Ghana, probably in the early 90s. Uh, I'd met him at that stage, and then I, I, I left Ghana, I wasn't working there anymore, in my role in the explosives industry, as I say, I was still going back. But through the years of my involvement uh, in the NHS, I used to see uh, the owner every now and again, and he got very interested that I was doing this board work. Yeah. And one of his ambitions was to grow his company. So my involvement with uh, with with Banwell was one, because of what I was doing in the industry, in those days I was representing Rand Refinery, which is a gold refinery from South Africa. So I used to have to visit all the mines quite regularly. So through my contact base in the mining industry and through my experience, my board experience at NHS, yeah. uh, Richard actually asked me to become an advisor to Banwell and that's when the Banwell journey started. Okay, I understand. And how did that journey uh, continue? Well, again, that, uh, I, you know, in doing this, I've, I've been reflecting on, on all the triggers that sort of moved you from one area to the next area. So the journey with Banwell was very interesting. It was, uh, as I said, it was a small earth-moving company. Yeah. Uh, the investors had come to Ghana simply because the market in the UK had closed down. Yeah. They had some equipment and they had made their way to develop a, a small business around the Tarko mines uh, doing about $12 million a year. But Richard was ambitious and really wanted to get into mining construction and contract mining. So through the years, we developed a strategy to build the business, uh, to bring in investors so him and his partner could sell out some of their equity. And that journey involved expanding the business into five different West African countries. Okay. Um, we did a lot of work in London, particularly often with at Minds and Money, yeah. where we uh, built recognition for the company, the, the strategy, what we could do. Um, some of the work that they did in Africa is you know, still a testament to the quality that they did. And I think in 2012, we did 78 million and had over a thousand employees. 
and had everything in place to begin bringing in a strategic investor okay. who was identified as uh, an African investment bank. Okay. So, uh, I mean, we really made great strides. It didn't, it didn't end happily, but that's how far we had got at yeah. that stage. Okay. So I suppose now let's go on more to more recent times, and obviously you yourself starting up a few companies and being involved um, a lot with other companies as well, but obviously focusing in, in Ghana, which is where it started X amount of years ago. So if you could just obviously go through your journey over the last five, six years with some of the companies you've been involved in and starting some of your own businesses and um, if you can share with us how you got, how you done that, how you started up business, especially in a, in a foreign country. Well, that started a bit, bit before my involvement in, in uh, Bandlaw. I think, you know, one of the things that when you go to a, a developing area uh, from a more sophisticated economy, uh, it is very easy to to identify or think you've identified opportunities for business. And I still think almost daily, uh, working in Africa, I see areas or hear about it, areas where, you know, there are investment opportunities. And I guess that's one of the attractivenesses of Africa. Yeah. So at the time, our first venture was... Uh, we were, we were importing uh, raw materials from um, Europe for the explosives industry. And another company that was also a joint venture with Ashanti was employing, uh, importing lime from uh, Belgium. Okay. And the, in order to save some costs, the two companies got together and we started to co-ship. So we reduced our shipping costs. As a result of that, we, we met some South African people who had invested some money in Ghana and it was in sort of mining supplies, but in the, in the chemical sector. And it was basically mining or chemical inputs for the assay industry. So assay laboratories and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I still had my chemical background. And that was the first company that was, was set up. The company had already been in existence, but five of us joined as partners. And um, I think with a lot of my, my involvement in companies, sometimes I had to sell out a little bit early. Okay. Uh, but certainly that company is still going today. Yeah. Uh, it was recently valued at $10 million. It, probably employs 20 Ghanaians. Yeah. Um, so you know, that has been a success story. We, from there, we got involved in two transport and logistics businesses. Again, simply out of the need that we, we were importing and, and supplying our own products. Uh, and those businesses, the one today has got 100 trucks and transports, a lot of raw materials for the mining industry up into Burkina Faso and Mali, okay. um, still owned by one of my partners. And the second business uh, became Stellar Logistics, which is a very big logistics supplier in the mining and oil sector in Ghana uh, that was uh, 
my partner was bought out. Yeah. So again, you know, they've all gone on to to do greater things. They haven't made me a, a vast fortune, but it was was fun doing that. Yeah. They, they all started generally out of an opportunity and a willingness to work with other expatriates and, and locals. Yeah. So obviously you would have come across numerous challenges and obviously you probably known probably know knew about Ghana having worked there previously. But for anyone that may be looking to set up a business in an African country, what are some of the major challenges you face that you could perhaps sort of explain in more detail to maybe help others that could be in a similar situation? Well, I think while I said that you can see an opportunity every day, one of the things that I have learned is that the opportunity doesn't always exist as you see it. And on a number of occasions, uh, there's been an obvious solution to what you perceive to be the need. But you realize that you haven't done your homework correctly, that there are a lot of subtleties and a lot of things you don't understand as to why that that market opportunity isn't fully exploited by other people. So I suppose identifying the problem very deeply, understanding that problem, and also understanding why other companies may have not looked at this, because there could be other associated problems as to why they haven't moved forward with it. So could that have been government intervention? Could it have been laws? Are they the sort of things? Well, I think, you know, there are rules to starting any business. One of them is, you know, you've got to understand the market. You've got to understand the market dynamics. You've got to understand the regulations in that market, the pricing, all, all those things. And even when you've done that, you generally find that there are some subtleties in an in an industry that are not completely obvious. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things in the transport industry is where you would expect every truckload in in Europe or in the UK to have a return load. So you deliver something out and you bring something back. It makes good economic sense. Most of the trucking capacity in West Africa travels one way empty. So if you go, well, hang on, I can... You know, I can fill this that way because I've got mining inputs going up to the mines and I can bring back cotton, cocoa. No, no, it just doesn't happen like that. Yeah. And if you've done your economics on a backload and it doesn't happen, yeah, it can be trouble. So yeah. a lot of times it, it is, it is um, regulatory issues. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's uh, just that the, the economics... That, that you think is obvious is not there. Yeah, so where it would happen here, like say in the UK, wouldn't necessarily happen in, no. in a country over there. And, and and the other restrictive thing is capital. Yeah. You know, um, because your your business startup is, is, you know, starting a business in Ghana is very easy. It's not complicated at all. Um, the registration, all those sorts of things. But... You know, if you think that the local interest rate in Ghana is probably 20 to 24%, right, okay. if you're raising local capital or you're trading in the local currency and then converting that back to dollars, you've got many risks in your business yeah. that if you don't have sufficient resources, your business suffers very early. Yeah. Um, so 
the mining industry is not always the fastest payer. So the, so that is one of the challenges for, for starting businesses is, is do you have sufficient resources? Have you identified all the known risks? And then have you planned for some of the unknown risks? Yeah. And you know, a good example of that was when Bangalore, we moved into very fertile opportunities in, in, in Liberia and Sierra Leone. So these were new mining frontiers, new mines were opening up. Uh, not all the companies that were traditionally doing that work in uh, West Africa were prepared to, to move into those more uh, risky jurisdictions. And, you know, one of the big impacts that, that Bangalore didn't succeed was we had Ebola. Okay. And that shut down two projects yeah. overnight, and the industry walked away. Yeah, yeah. And there's not much you could have done about that. There's not much you could have done about that. Uh, you know, it could happen anywhere. But yeah. I mean, there are other risks in in Africa that you you know you wouldn't expect a plague. Yeah. To affect a business in Europe. Yeah. You know, so it just wouldn't be on your planning list. Out of your control that you have no, you can't do anything about. No. So you just have to work with it. Um, and wait until it's been resolved. But equally, I, I would think on any risk register or risk discussion, you, yeah, would, not, you would not have included that because no. it just wasn't, you know, you would discuss money and you would discuss politics and all yeah. those things that can affect your business. But the, the advent of what was a, a terrible disease mm -hmm shutting down two countries almost yeah well, and and even guinea was badly affected you wouldn't have thought of it no. and it was no. it was traumatic so someone starting a business in africa would you always say they need someone on board that is local and knows well knows the industry or knows the country where you can live i suppose have less risk on some of the things that you mentioned is that always necessary i would say it's always necessary i would say um you know one of the things about africa is that very often you you step off the plane you go through the airport and what you see is similar you know it's not radically different and then you think you understand africa one of the things i have learned that in the 50 odd countries of africa everyone is different yes and particularly if you've come out of south africa which which in those days were the regulations and supply chain and all things were very clear you you couldn't take that mindset but in west africa you know ghana as i've said is an easy jurisdiction you can come in you can do business yeah you go to mali you go to burkina faso you go to Cote d'Ivoire, you go to uh, guinea they are not the same. I'm not saying that they're, they're more difficult or, or worse, but you have to understand what's going on. Yeah. How do you do that? Yes, find a local partner. Yeah. The difficulty with that is finding the right local partner. Yeah. And that, I think, is where a lot of businesses get into trouble. Yeah. Because there are many candidates. Yeah. And I suppose finding the right partner, you have to have the same goals, you have to have the same values, and have, I suppose you have to work, you'd be working in partnerships, so again, you need to have, you need to get on as well. So there's a lot of different 
factors in trying to find the right partner? A lot. Yeah. Um, and I would say a number of companies that I know, the businesses have failed simply because that relationship has failed. Yeah. Uh, one, as you said, agree the objectives because very often the aspirations of the two parties are different. Somebody wants to invest and get a long-term return on their money and build the business, which means you're investing your profits. Other people might want to harvest the profits because they need the money for, for to invest in their family or, or other issues. So that's one key area. One has always got to be politically aware that your partner in this era might not be the partner for the next era because of their political connections, associations, or even just history. You know, a, a surname can almost relate you to the other party where your partner is actually apolitical, but just his name might, might get people to think that he's associated with a certain political view. Yeah. That is very difficult. There is a, there's a big thing now in Africa, which is important, is that the local people are not participating in the mining industry. Okay. Outside of South Africa, there are very, very few miners or Africans that own mines. Yeah. So international companies come in and own those mines. Yeah. yeah. Mainly because they have the resources and the expertise, but they're not... You know, in, outside of Southern Africa, you've got the government being a 10% free carry partner, but there's no, you know, there's no Motsepe, there's no Tokyo Sexuali like you've got in South Africa. That yeah. Even though they invested through the BEE process, they have now taken those companies on to one stage further. So what a lot of people are looking at now, particularly in Ghana, is, okay, for Ghanaians to invest in the mining business, it's a very big capital challenge. Yeah. A new mine in West Africa will cost you anything from 400 million upwards. So the supply chain is the area where they believe that Ghanaians can or the local people should participate because yeah. if they find the right partner, then they can become shareholders. So again, that comes back to, you know, do you have the right partner? Does your partner understand the mining industry? Because the yeah. mining industry is not an immediate return industry. It's, no. it's, 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 a, it's a longer term game. Yeah. You know, how big do you want this company to be? Mm -hmm. How many countries? Because the other thing in some of these jurisdictions is that, you know, you, you expand into West Africa and you consider that as your market base. Yeah. But you've got 10 different countries with different regulations, with different things. So you, you're almost forced to start a new company in each entity. And you can't always take your Ghanaian partner through to Burkina Faso. You yeah. need the Burkina Faso partner. Yeah. Do you think it's a big issue with these big mining companies going into Africa? Um, I know mining companies, or they try and help the local communities when they come into those particular countries and communities, but do you think it's a big issue and do the locals like these big companies coming into their area to develop their land or does it depend upon each country and each community? That is, that is a very good question. The, all these countries, all of Africa, need employment. Yeah. 
One thing about the modern mining industry, it probably employs less and less people each year as technology and, and science help the industry. So if you think of an underground mine many years ago in Ghana, maybe you would have had up to a thousand employees. Gold fields mine, you know, many times more than tons with about 300 people because they've got big machines, they've got uh, you know, an operator, a single operator can move many tons. So there is, a, there is a hunger for employment, but I think local communities are starting to say, well, you know, what did we get out of it? Yeah. You know, yes, 30% of the local community were employed, but what happened to the 70%? What happened to the school teacher? Did, did, did they get a better salary out of it? Did the doctor get a better salary? And there's a lot of tension around uh, what mining brings to a local community. And, and obviously in a lot of these countries, those communities have not had the money reinvested in the community to say, okay, as a result of mining, we got a new road, we got a new school. This is often left to the mining company. Yeah. Through corporate social responsibility programs, through various investment programs, to try, to try and uplift the infrastructure, and and that becomes that become that can be a burden because yeah. the local community can say, well, you haven't done enough. Yeah. Um, and I, I know right at the moment there there are some mines in Ghana owned by a very large mining company that are really struggling in their local community, and they've had several closures of the mine due to the local community complaining that they're not benefiting sufficiently. Yeah. Is that because of the expectations of both parties? So yes. the, community, uh, the, the local community and of the mining company, their expectations may be completely different and way off. I don't think the mining companies go in there in any way. You know, they use very, what's the word I'm looking for? They use expertise that have done these things across the whole of Africa. Mining companies understand going into a place, what is required, what the regulations require. Um, they engage early with the, the community. I think you know, the thing about the community is they would like instant wealth. You know, so they want instant benefit of jobs and, and all those things to happen. And it doesn't and they, happen. And it doesn't happen. Yeah. So, and I think you know, there is, politicians do err and tell that the local community that this investment is good for them. Yeah. Because there will be jobs and there will be money and whatever. But it's not coming out the right as probably they want to. No. Yeah. And that, that, that causes friction. Yeah. Um, obviously, in some of the mining communities, you, you have to uh, move people. And that, that can be hard. Yeah. Again... There are companies that do this properly and uh, you know, proper compensations are paid. But again, at the end of it, you know, did, did, did their lives change uh, for, the for the better? Yeah. Having said that, I would like to share something with you because when we started the explosives business in Ghana, we, were, we built the factory on a mine up in an area north of Takwa called Bogosu. And the land that the mine gave us to, to build the explosives factory was, was largely a swamp. Uh, it was poor land. It was inhabited by some indigenous farmers. 
who were farming what they could and then delivering it to the local town. And a lot of those people became pioneer workers. And the one lady I remember very specifically because that company is now 24 years old. Her name is Mary. She was the cleaner. Mary can't speak English to this day. Yeah. But she was very conscientious. And she at that time had five children, five young children, which probably through disease, malaria, probably not all of them would have got to adulthood. Certainly most of them would not have got to further education. If you look at Mary today, she's still an employee of the company. She's the oldest employee of the company. She has her own house in Tarqua. Her eldest son is studying engineering. And I guess for a lot of people, Mary has played the long game. Yeah. She herself has just had a job. But it's been a secure job, but she's been paid every month. But yeah. she has used all that money to advance her family. Yeah. And I guess the thing that I'm trying to say is that sometimes these mining developments, you've got to look at the next generation and the next generation yeah. for where where the real value might lie. Because yeah. I know, you know, a lot of the people employed in the mining industry have have enabled their children to go into university and study overseas. And I think if they come back, then then Ghana, you can go back and say that was a result of the mining investment. Yeah. yeah. What a great story to slowly, uh, slowly wrap, up, wrap up on. And obviously that success has come through mining. Um, and I suppose anyone listening to this that is in any countries within Africa, uh, sometimes it may be just looking at the longer term as opposed to the shorter term and look at the success Mary, Mary actually had. Just want to go on to a, a few quick-fire questions that I ask everyone. Why do you enjoy the mining industry? Well, I didn't know I was going to enjoy the, okay. enjoy the mining industry. I, I, be, I came to like the mining industry uh, because... One, I, I think it's a business that operates with many variables. Yeah. So, you know, even though you, you understand some of the basics, once the earth is opened, it presents some a lot of variables and you've got to so there's always challenges in mining. And the mining industry is always keen to, to beat the challenge. Yeah. So they're a can do population. Yeah. I think it's a small community around the world. Yeah. You know, once you've worked in a place like Ghana, you start to realize that the person you met five years ago has come back in a different role yeah. and he knows the guy that is now in South America. Exactly. So yeah. it's a very tight industry. Yeah. I think the other thing that they have done is where they've gone, they've they've helped people. Yeah. You know, so so if I look in Ghana, twenty four years ago I would go to a mining company and probably everybody from a superintendent level to the GM yeah. was expatriate. Yeah. Today I go to those some, same companies locals. and they're largely locals, yeah. you know, right up to the GM. And yeah. that, that is that. So I think mining always helps. Yeah. yeah. But it's obvious you have to get to mining. I think, you know, sometimes the expectation is when somebody sees an exploration rig coming into the district. That there's going to be a mine and there's expectation but yeah. that doesn't always happen no. so i think where the mines have been built excluding some of the awful tragedies that have happened you know i think the the, the country and the and the people have have benefited yeah 
Who's been the most influential person? In the, in my, in in the, the mining, mining industry, yeah. Definitely, so Sam Jonah. Okay. My first okay. Ghana boss. Yeah. Without a doubt, you know, clearly a leader, clearly extremely intelligent, clearly a businessman, and allowed me to be very comfortable in what was an uncomfortable situation when I first arrived. So, yeah. you know, he he made me feel comfortable, he introduced me to the right people, um, and when I applied for my non-exec role in the NHS, uh, he wrote me a very glowing reference, which I'm pretty sure was instrumental in me getting that role, That's which cool. again helped me become a yeah. chartered director. So, yeah. Is there anything else you still want to achieve? Uh, I think I think my role as a non-executive director has still got a, a, a lot of uh, legs. Yeah. I would like to become a non-executive director of a mining company. Yeah. Uh, maybe a small junior in the exploration phase. Yeah. Uh, while my expertise is not mining, I understand a lot about mining now and I understand a lot about the risks of both mining and operating the mine. So yeah. and and the jurisdiction of, of Africa. Yeah. So I think yeah, that that's still to come. Yeah. Where do you see the future of mining? That is in technology, without a doubt. And that is going to be a detriment to developing countries. Yeah. All the technology at the moment is leading towards lesser jobs rather than more. Yeah. So that is going to be a tension for the mining industry coming into the future. I mean, I think in places like in South Africa where safety at very deep levels is a real issue, technology is going to allow access to to resources that, that can't be mined safely by, by humans. Yeah. But in a place like Ghana where you've got an open pit mine and you you could drive your rigs and drive your trucks, the technology both from a cost point of view and accuracy point of view is just going to move those people aside. And that that, that but the mining industry will not survive without the use of technology. Yeah. And lastly, um, any advice that you'll give any sort of mining professionals in the industry that may be looking to maybe move into an expatriate role or even um, start a business within a another country, whether that be in Africa, whether that be in Asia, or maybe Europe or any other country around the world? I thought of sort of that question, and my simple answer would be go for it. Okay. But I think I would say that you know, make sure that you go there with the right intention. You know, make sure you you build the locals. Yeah. You know, so when you leave, you've left people. So if you're going to go and work there, make sure you can transfer your skills. Make sure that, that those people can use those skills to the benefit of their operations. I think very often when we go there as a big company, we are we are running to the timelines of the shareholders and stuff and, and, and we don't often spend enough time doing that transfer, making sure that that, that the, the people can, can survive after we've left. Yeah. Open a business, 
yeah, Africa needs lots of people to come and help them, but you have to come with the right attitude. You're there as a guest. You're there to share your wealth if you make it, uh, and then and you'll have a you know you will be welcome and you'll have an enjoyable time. Yeah. So do it. Yeah, I think that's some important points you uh, just made there. Um, sharing the wealth, like I said, and the and being a guest in those countries, um, which some people think just overlook. So um, yeah, some great points there. Um, well, I appreciate your time today, Dave, and uh, for discussing your journey and giving us an insight to working as an expat in Ghana, in Africa, and obviously Nagi Ghana. Um, and really appreciate your time today. If our audience wants to uh, contact you, um, how can how can they go about doing that? Uh, they can contact me. Uh, my company is uh, Ursa Limited, so it's Dave. Norval at ursalimited.com. And you on any social platforms at all? Oh, LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, yes. Yeah. Okay, so you're happy for people to contact you on that? Yes, indeed. Yeah. No worries. As you did yourself. I As I did, yeah. <laughs> Alternatively, you can contact myself uh, via email, which is rob at mining-international.org. You can um, send me some questions, which I can then forward on to Dave. Um, well, thank you for listening again. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. And until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org. Or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.